seen any good movies lately? I did just see Wonder Woman. You know, just you by yourself and with some popcorn? I took the two oldest boys. So, okay. Um, you know, these superhero movies, they know what they're doing. They know they're yeah. going to get the family in. Well, and DC has been struggling. People have not been happy with some of their stuff. Uh, not, you know, there's lots of different reasons why. And not just the nerds, but your average moviegoer found some of the stuff to be too dark. Did you? How would you like this one? I thought it was terrific. It was wonderful, actually. Yeah, it got good reviews. Yes. As, as many have said, I think it's the best DC movie since The Dark Knight. Oh, wow. You know, and, I, and I would still say The Dark Knight is better. But this is just really solid. It's it's got great scenes, a good plot. It's funny. It, it it's it's engaging. You like the characters. It, it's just smart all around. Yeah. Um. It, it is a little strange. You've got is it Robin Wright, the woman in House of Cards, and was in the oh, Princess yeah. Bride. Forrest Gump girl. Oh, that's right. I forgot that was Forrest Gump. Jenny. Jenny. Yeah. And she's one of the Amazonians, and it's just weird seeing her in that headgear and dress because you think she's the first lady you know it's kind of weird yeah well it's like when lord of the rings came out and the bad guy for the matrix was <laughs> what's his name the, elf, the yes. head elf and you're like and he talks the same way you just expect him to go mr anderson yeah <laughs> at some point there's some faces and voices that are too too distinct too distinct Yes, especially when they're both popular now. And and I see that and I just think, oh yeah, she's gotta cash in on the superhero fad too. They're all they've all gotta write a check off of that. That's everything. No. The actress who was the wife in Breaking Bad. Did you ever watch Breaking Bad? Yes, long ago. Yeah. She cried a lot. She cried a lot. She and she was but she was very manipulative. Mm-hmm. And she like was so mad at him she openly had an affair. I mean it was pretty dark stuff. The actress later said that People on the street are kind of they don't like her like that. She is she did the she did the character so well and it was written so well and shot so well that she's almost been typecast as someone who can never play like no one will believe her as like a tender, right, lovable person because they're always going to think, no, she's she's lying. She's manipulative. And, you know, she's typecast as the evil one. Yeah, that is weird. You know, the other weird typecasting to me is Kate Beckinsale, who's in all those yeah. underworld movies, because she's very attractive, she's capable, and she was in yeah. that old um, Shakespeare. She was in Pearl Harbor. I remember early. Okay, I think that was her. She's in one that Kenneth Branagh Shakespeare and all that, and now she's basically the sci-fi heroine hottie, and it's yeah. just like, do you really like doing this? Are is it worth the money, or are you stuck? Yeah. Do you really want to be in a movie series where all they're thinking about is how tight to make the leather on you? Correct. And that vampires and werewolves are in a big battle. I mean, the first one was fine. I, I haven't seen the others. It's not bad. I've watched all of them just because... Of her? <laughs> no, no. The Because the, the first one was pretty good. I mean, unfortunately, Twilight stole this idea of werewolves versus... Well, I mean, it's an old idea, but Twilight ruined it forever because they made it a love triangle. But... This was kind of more of a, a unique take on it. So I, I watched part. I kept going, oh, come on. Maybe the next one. Will be. They keep making them. they got to be getting better. But it's not the case. It's There There are complete sci-fi candy, you might say. Or it's not eye candy, but it's more, well, at least it's better than, you know, something boring, I guess. Popcorn movie. There you go. That's the way to put it. I've never rewatched them, though. Put it that right. way. Yeah, Wonder Woman is is was 
it was smart that they said it during World War One with kind of copying Captain America. So you get that kind of you just get that whole look. It's a period piece in a sense. And you get the trenches yeah. and all that. And she's seeing the horrors of war. And and there's a great plot line where she's kind of idealistic that she leaves the island and she's going to stop war and evil. And then she sees the horrors kind of World War One, the, the war to end all worlds, war, the war to end all wars or possibly worlds. Yeah, the, it's going to end the world. Yeah. yeah, the Infinity War, something it's like that. It's actually the war against the world, not <laughs> the, you know. <laughs> I love H.G. Wells's reporting. It's so, so good. This is H.G. Wells coming, yeah. Coming from Mars. I wish we could all still talk that way, like just in ordinary life. Like our radio voices would be like this, but when we actually get off the, the <laughs> mic, we're going, well, thanks, that's a good talk. I'll see you in the morning. Why did they do that? What was that? I have that? no idea. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I've read some theories that the way the mics worked, a certain volume increase, like you had to speak louder, and just a certain, a certain vocal range was better, and it was always guys like that. But also, it's kind of like the Julia Child thing. There were, there were accents that, or, or the, the Audrey Hepburn kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Some of those accents were very cool or posh or something. And I mean, Julia Child, like the whole, you know, very, what do they call it, Atlantic accent. It was considered educated, but now it sounds old-timey. Reminds me of the whole thing about smiling in photos and how people didn't used to smile at all, and now we have to smile. So it's like a cultural shift that... Well, you know why? You know why they didn't smile? Teeth. No. Dang that's it. that. That's the myth. It took a full, sometimes at least multiple seconds, 10, 20, 30 seconds, maybe a full out, like full, sorry, full minute for the exposure to take because it was... With cameras, of course, you're it, back then. It's not digitized. It's actual light coming through the lens. If you Google it, there are sort of slightly fuzzy old pictures from like the late 1800s, let's say, of people laughing or smiling in the middle of the take, and they like ruin the shot because it's like a blur. It's a blur, yeah. Because that's mm. the thing: you can't hold a smile as still as you can if you just look somber. Everybody was the flash in in photos back then. Like there that's was right. just a blur. Yeah, it's cool. In the 1930s and 40s, 20s, the proverbial you hold the thing over your head and it's the flash and it goes off and it's like, it's got like gunpowder on it. It's like very spooky the, the, to, to make the flash happen. Mm -hmm. Well, in the late 1800s, they didn't, I don't think they had invented that yet. It's the equivalent of if you're taking star photography and you go out and like to the Grand Canyon at night and there's no natural light, you just leave the camera lens open and you get those amazing star scapes mm -hmm. up in the, in the, up, up above you. It's like that, but you have to do that with actual people sitting. So they'd have to just sit there stone still. Closer in that way to painting your portrait than anything else. So that does go back to maybe there was the microphone technology. There was a reason they talked like that. And then it just became normal. And then at some point it transitioned. Yeah. Americans landed to defeat the enemies. Defeat the enemies. War, war. Now you were telling me the Logan movie. You were saying good things. Yeah, the Logan movie was great. Of course, it's an R-rated movie. Just spoiler alert on that. Well, it's not really a spoiler, but just in terms of it's it's a little more visceral. There's a lot more. It's a lot of cursing, I hear. A lot of cursing, though. The cursing has its place. It's not just people saying aggressive or angry things for their own sake. But obviously, there's a lot more killing. Um, a lot of the Marvel movies, there's the things you kill are robots or aliens that that don't really seem to have personality. But in this case, there's lots of killing. Though the great thing about the movie is two things. One, this is almost this almost never happens. Uh, I'm not too bad out of shape when it doesn't, because what else are you going to do? But when you pull it off, it's amazing, which is they got a child actress 
who every bit owns the space and the stage with Patrick Stewart and Hugh Jackman. That's impressive. There are scenes where she's yelling at them or she has to you know, look sad and lost. I mean, all these things. She speaks Spanish. She's a British actress, I think it is, who is also half Spanish. So she occasionally breaks into Spanish. And I looked at some of the outtakes, and that's actually how she got the part, is she was supposed to argue with Wolverine in you know, English or something. And she looked at the directors and said, can I speak Spanish? Can I ad lib? I mean, it, she's like six, seven. She's like, can wow. I ad lib or something like or Maybe she's more like eight or nine. And so she completely ad libs this thing where she's yelling at him in Spanish. She almost wins the scene out over Hugh Jackman. So she's great. Wow. Does she do an American accent? I don't think. Yeah, she speaks like, oh, I mean, she uses a... Um, Canadian? accent. No, she uses an accent of English as a second language. So she has like a Spanish tone to it. Okay. I saw an interview with her and she's got a British accent, like right. flawless. The other thing about it, you know, child actresses aside, is the whole movie is about death and age. Hmm. Because one of the central plot devices, this gives nothing away, but the central plot devices is that Charles Xavier has Alzheimer's, which is really, really a unique thing. I don't, I don't think that's ever been done in any of the comics, any of the stories about him, because... Of course, he's a telepath. He's the world's most powerful brain or dangerous brain, whatever they call him. You know, he can use that Cerebro device in all the X-Men mm -hmm. movies and look all around the world with no problem. He can make a whole room freeze. I mean, it, all the, it's he's one of the most powerful folks, and it's all his mind. Well, what happens to that mind when it gets Alzheimer's? It's really, really incredible. He starts to, to lose it. Patrick Stewart does an amazing job of looking like a frail old man who's getting old and is not long from death, and he needs help eating. He needs help taking his medicine, going to the bathroom. It's very, very visceral, and anybody that's had a grandparent or parent suffer either from a chronic illness or pass away, and they've seen you know, some of the challenge of, t of care, it's as, again, earthy as it gets. It's really cool. Hmm, that is neat. It's neat. I look forward to seeing that. Because I think the ultimate thing is it comes down to the characters and their relationships. So in this case, it's not just Wolverine going like, Arr! and like making his claws come out and being awesome with the sideburns. Mm -hmm. But in this one, you see he actually does love Charles because he's been like a father to him. And there's this whole tender thing where he has to also learn to love this younger sort of protege who's um, somewhat like his daughter now. But it's, no, it's not about the claws, it's about the relationships. Which it sounds like Wonder Woman was that way as well. That it was a more interesting tale and a story, and the relationships were stronger. Whereas sometimes it's just stuff blow up and it's not that cool. Correct, yeah. I'm trying to think, I don't know that Wonder Woman has an overarching theme or message that like it sounds like Logan had. But I think it's just on one level, just a really well done, plotted, good scene movie but there is this idea that she kind of wants to be a messiah figure and she has to see what that would mean. And it, I would guess, it sounds like, uh, again, not spoiling it, I haven't even seen it. Sounds like part of it is she has to come to grips that you can't be altruistic in that level of I'm going to end war. You know, I'm going to stop all this. Yeah, I think so. And it's, again, it's not, it's not throughout the movie, but I think that is kind of a, a subtle theme there is, yes, how do you... How do you really fight evil? And and she's left the island and she's got this idea of what she should do. And then she realizes that it's going to be different. Yeah. So so it's, it's kind of a coming of age, but in a way, it's a, a, a story about maturing. That is classic DC. DC is always, even if you had all the power to do anything you wanted, would you still be able to stop humanity from being fundamentally itself? Right. 
Superman is has no real vulnerabilities. I mean, kryptonite, yes, but it's it's not like it's everywhere. In fact, it's it's too much sometimes in some of the plots. But if if you if you don't have it, he's essentially unstoppable. He can't do anything. But he can't stop the nature of man. Is always one of the big plot plot lines. Correct. Yes, he is stuck. And then Batman has that vision too of of trying to stop evil, but then he's limited by his technology and things. And they're both limited by they can't be everywhere and and they can't fight every battle. Um, So DC is just very mature in that sense, in a way that Marvel was great. Marvel's much more kind of just fun. Yeah. I mean, DC, that's why I think DC gets a little, people accuse it of being a little preachy. There was one Superman plot line where uh, I forget, I think it was after a reboot and he was relatively new to the superhero thing. There's, um, you know, some fictional, Pol Pot kind of horrible tyrant who's destroying people and blowing them up and just because he's he's that evil. Superman just basically breaks sovereign law, goes into his territory, like threatens him. And all. I mean, it's this whole thing of like, I can just pick you up and throw you out, you know, under the sun. You know, why am I? I'm not scared of you. And he actually loses like a certain arc of the story. He starts to lose the battle because the guy can play all the UN cards and you know the go- the U.S. government and everyone else says you can't do this. It's not that we think he's he shouldn't be stopped. It's that you've now made every other country suspicious and fearful that you're going to come in and overthrow the government. Mm-hmm. And so he gets everyone against him by threatening this guy. Anyway, it's this whole thing of like your muscles or your invulnerability means nothing at some level because you have to deal with realpolitik at some point. Yes, yeah, that's great. And, and Marvel deals with issues like teenage angst and 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 peter parker and you know these sort of the irony that he's this really powerful hero but he's also a kid that can't get a date so that's yeah. classic marvel in a sense that dc might have a bit of that with clark kent superman but you know but it's also barely but barely because yeah. you know this sort of a wink wink nudge nudge and even clark kent is kind of a, a handsome dude so he's, he's not exactly peter parker who's much more scrawny um, yeah. physically so yeah, DC's there's a certain maturity, a certain uh, kind of sadness, I think, to the DC world. And of course, DC's had different generations of heroes with different Green Lanterns, and you really don't have that in Marvel, do you? Until recently, no. like it's really yeah. Spider-Man, it's really Captain America. Now, recently they've redone some of that, but but DC's had three different Green Lanterns and three different Flashes, you know, Silver Age Flash, and Marvel is doing that. You're right. We've mentioned this at least a cup occasionally in passing, but. There's a new Iron Man who's a female. She goes by Iron Heart. And she's, she's uh, an African-American girl from Chicago. She's a super genius from like age five. And she's like an MIT by age nine, that kind of thing. And so she starts to build her own suit. And Tony gets out of commission, gets put into a coma. So she gets to kind of take over. But it's funny because, yeah, there's this whole thing of, I'm not going to be Iron Woman. I'm going to be Iron Heart. And they do it really well. They write the story well. But, you know, there's been a female Wolverine, there's been a f- now a female Thor, which is actually a really cool plot. It's, it's not going to make the movie, so it's, it's pretty neat. But Jane Dawson, so if you ever saw the first or the second Thor movie, the, the standalone Thor movies, Padme, well, the, 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 the actress yes. that plays Padme in Star Wars, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. She's Jane Dawson from the comics. Well, anyway, in the, in the actual recent comics, she has stage four cancer. She's not long for death. And she, ref, you know, refuses certain treatment um, that might save her because she doesn't want to, like, use magic to, to get cured because so many people don't have it. She's very noble. 
she picks up the hammer, you find out, and she's the one flying around as, as the female Thor. But here's, here's the plot twist. She's, she takes chemotherapy to, to hold off the cancer. Every time she transforms into Thor, it offsets the chemo and it goes back so that the cancer is back, like still allowed to ravage the body. It's a really interesting plot Weird. device where yeah. it's like you have to, will you sacrifice your, like, to become essentially Thor, again, like a, a demigod, will you allow your mortal form to be killed? But they don't overdo it, but it's just a little bit like, to save this people, I will kill myself slowly, more, at least qu- more quickly. Gosh. Imagine the copays. <laughs> yeah. Boy, this did nothing after last week. What happened? Uh, nothing. Never mind. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's interesting. The the genre. It's a bit like what makes a comic work cuz I think the the outsider would think, "Oh, a comics are all the same thing. It's it's beat up the bad guy, get the girl, you know, all that kind of stuff." And I think there is a certain level of sense in which there's a a genre that you have to kind of fit within. But none of them f- are necessarily exactly the same model. You're right. Peter Parker is everybody's high school dweeb. In fact, in fact, the recent character that they hired to play Peter Parker I think it was a brilliant choice because he actually is a late teen, high school age yes, person. Yeah. He looks young. Yeah, whereas all the previous guys have been like in their mid to late twenties. Like they mm-hmm. can't. They may be. They may look young, but they can't pull off high school. And what about that great irony for the old Peter Parker that the way to make money is he pretends to be a photographer who stages photos of himself <laughs> right. as Spider Man. So as it's Spider-Man. really like a, a, a really interesting perspective irony that that he's taking photos of himself in order to pay the bills, but he can't admit that he's actually the guy. Like, that's just yeah. that's just really interesting uh, trick. At least the, the, the Peter Parker in the le- recent Civil War, and I saw some of the trailers for the, the new Spider-Man, that's what Spider-Man is supposed to be in the comics, mm-hmm. is, you know, earbud, kind of nerdy. He can't, he can't quite take anything too seriously. Yeah, he's immature. Immature. Whereas... Mm-hmm. And the other ones, he's kind of cynical, sarcastic, which just doesn't work. Uh, maybe it worked in the time. I don't know. They came out in the 90s. Well, the problem they get is if they want to follow him growing up, because in the comics, he marries Mary Jane, and then they separate. And so they want to follow him growing up, but then everyone misses the classic. So they kind of have to reboot yeah. somehow. No, they do. They do. I'm glad they finally fixed the fact that his aunt is not like 95 years old. Yes. You're like, oh, yes, you should be like 40. Marisa Tomei, yeah. Yeah, that's really funny. And that Tony Stark would hit on her. He's hitting on her. (laughs) Oh, we're talking. Go away. Yeah. What? You know, uh, DC Marvel, I wonder if we could connect this with different types of theology. Mm. Is it in our powers? Yeah, I mean, I think so. You're talking about the the issue of genre. Yeah. Like like the fact that systematic, a, a pure systematic theology like, say, Aquinas or Calvin's Institutes looks different than other types of systematic theology like Wesley. Correct. Yeah. Um, like there's no place in Wesley to say, turn to book three, chapter two, and read his decided, well thought out, crystallized view on X. Yes. Yes. Because like Calvin, he wor- kept refining the Institutes, right? He kept going back. And so it's oh, almost yeah. like a Wikipedia thing. Like he could keep on re-editing and changing it. And Wesley... Wesley didn't have time for that, so he was on a horse. Nobody uh, got time for that. Ain't got time for that. It, it's the whole systematic theology thing is is interesting because it's required in seminary, usually required for ordination, but nobody knows what it is. And I didn't know of what it was till a few years ago. Like you just sort of think you take this class, 
Yeah. And you think that's theology, but the epiphany I had really late was kind of realizing, wait a minute, the stuff in the Bible and the stuff in Augustine and the stuff in Luther and the stuff in Wesley is very different than the stuff in Calvin, Aquinas, or Bart, or Baltazar. Yeah. That, that this this idea of almost creating Wikipedia-linked sections or, or creating a, a massive topical... You know, I guess to me... Almost like an encyclopedia. It's almost like an encyclopedia. And there may be a plot line as it moves forward, but it's much more topical. You know, to me, that's the systematic theology is a system. It's it's, it's arranged in topics. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, usually Trinitarian, right? And related to creation and then anthropology and you go that way. But, you know, Augustine, he doesn't do that. No. I mean, he is a pastor. Mm-hmm. No pastor thinks pedagogically that the best way to disciple a flock or you know Sunday school, whatever we're going to call it today, is to okay this this month we're going to go doctrine of God and then next month it'll be the doctrine of right. God's attributes. Except for and, your boy yeah. Calvin, although I guess he's writing institutes. He's writing the institutes for seminary trained folk. It, it is meant to be somewhat like an encyclopedia. Yeah. And it's, uh, uh, that's one of the problems is people have continued to read it as if it's, I guess, more or less supposed to be read cover to cover, but it's not. At least that's not the intent. And people have noticed when you read his commentaries, they are a lot more narrative and hmm. flowing, flowing like a humanist would. It's so funny because Luther is the only reformer trained as a scholastic, but he writes in many ways not in an academic order, mm-hmm. but rather he writes in dialectic, which is argument. But you know, you're right. Augustine won't do that. But I mean, I think part of it is the word systematic is not historical until very, very recently. Huh. It's it's an actually I think more of an it is a more, an enlightenment word. Yes. This idea of categories and systemizing things. So it, it's a bit of a something of a misnomer when some people say, "Well, this is systematic theology." What they mean is it's it's organized categorically. Right. And now, of course, we have well, there's biblical theology, practical theology, narrative theology. You know, it. it Systematics sounds like just another adjective, but in history it was it was different. It, in, in the prickly Reformation period, it was called loci, the loci method, hmm. and it was the idea loci are headings, or we might call chapter headings or subheadings in our books. So you know when you're reading through a chapter and there's a new subheading and it starts a new paragraph, that's a that would be a loci, and it's the idea of just topical arrangement. So instead of trying to, you know, do the narrative of the Bible itself, you say, okay, let's start with one topic, and it could be any of them. And then you're basically saying, under each of these headings, we're going to summarize, that's the key word, summarize in in an orderly fashion what we think the Bible says as a whole on this. Now, that's kind of systematic, but it's also useful. It it kind of says, you know, we're not going to do theology merely as on-the-fly, you know, sort of period pieces that we need right now for this issue. <laughs> Period pieces. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's, yeah. It's, it's, no, no, you're right. It yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. It's a response to something. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, after tragedy happens, you know, yeah, you, you need to talk about it versus that's a different thing than what, what does the Bible say about suffering and tragedy? Right. Because you get those bits in Paul where he's saying, please bring my coat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Or right. something. laughs> so. Timothy, take a glass of wine every now and again. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's definitely. Where does uh, that fit? That, yeah. It does say something about Calvin's personality and the different. T- I mean, I wouldn't. I'm not built that way to edit the same book over 25 years. But one of the things I did find out recently, a biography of Calvin's brings out very, very well. 
Calvin actually wrestled with this because he was he had done the first edition of the Institutes, and it's just a simple little book. It's not this opus that it became. Yeah, I'd heard that. It fit in your pocket originally. It was like a yeah. little little pocket. It was a little defense of basically the whole point of the, the first edition was we're not Anabaptist, which by that point, 1536, Anabaptists had been coded as terrorists nice. because of a couple, of a couple of mavericks that had taken over cities and started wars and things. So the last chapter in the First Institutes is this, this sort of tirade about we're not Anabaptists. We're not, we're not trying to overthrow the world and apocalyptic visions. But later he realizes it could become, against something used for training. And so he starts to organize it in what we would identify as systematics. And then Bruce Gordon's recent biography points out that Calvin reads Melanchthon's commentary on Romans. And Melanchthon sort of stopped him cold for a while because Melanchthon raises the point, which is the point I think you were just raising, which is Romans is not presented in systematic categories. Huh. I didn't know that, that he yeah. made that argument. Yeah. Melanchthon points out, he goes, it starts with sin, which isn't the beginning of the narrative of the Bible. It then goes through Christology and some of the stuff. And then it goes, then it later talks about predestination, which from a low side standpoint happens before. And it just goes on about that there's a we might use the word existential or an individual appreciation of it, which is a Christian says, uh, you know, I, I now have come to faith. Why? You know, I need Jesus. And then from that, they work out in concentric circles, which is Melanchthon's argument about Romans, that it actually puts the, the immediate felt need first and then later explains the categories out of that pattern. Mm-hmm. So that it still has a loci or topics that Paul's talking about in different sections, but it's 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 in the order of the the needs of the reader, and Calvin's good like dang it like and he's and he actually stress it worries about this <laughs> dang it <laughs> yeah because because I mean this whole thing begins with doctrine of God and that's not the elementary first question is what is the what are, what are God's attributes you know mm-hmm. you begin with you know what what do I who am I what do I need I'm you know I feel lost whatever it is. We always start with the self, at least at some fundamental religious question, and then work out. Or questions of methodology, like how can we even have this type of knowledge? And then you spend the entire first volume describing your method and how you can, you know, what Baltasar says, seeing the form, like describing your categories, basically. Though I don't know. My nine-year-old just recently asked me what I think about the hermeneutical circle and Gadamer. Really? (laughs) (laughs) And what would you say? Give me, give me some cornflakes and I'll tell you. I said, shut up. Go, go, play, with, go play with your Legos. <laughs> Stupid kid and your Gadamer questions. No, but no, that's right. Methodology questions. I remember, I think it was Charles Hodge, one of them, who wrote sort of the, the classic Protestant systematic, at least the structure of it. I think the opening section is like a discussion on the very idea of God or something like this. I mean, you're, you're talking mm-hmm. about a very, you know, again, he's, he's working within an Enlightenment hermeneutic and trying to defend that it's it's possible to talk about these things after Kant. But nonetheless, it, you get this, this structure where it, it sometimes the way systematics are written, they're at their worst when they pretend that this is how people actually think. Right. It's a very rarefied thing. And it's creating its own categories. And I, I, this comes up with defining religion itself, that scholars talk about religion, and yet interestingly, in pre-modern religions, which most religions are pre-modern, um, or mm-hmm. many of them are, it doesn't have a concept of religion. Right. It's so ingrained. It's so ingrained. Yeah. So religion itself is a category of the scholar to describe something that doesn't contain that category. 
So yes. it's kind of this weird, and it doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means you have to be self-aware of your self-awareness, which is really, yeah. you know, bizarre. Which itself is, is sort of an enlightenment thing. It's, it's yeah, p- paying attention to yourself while you think about yourself. Yeah. I'm a phenomenological rapper. I'm going to lay it down while I'm thinking about it. That's <laughs> right. There's a new book that came out. Carlos Ira uh, is a Yale professor. He's sort of the, um, he's, he's been a bit, this is going to sound bad, but he's been sort of the J.D. Salinger of uh, uh, Reformation history. His books are banned? <laughs> no, not like that. You can't chew in the rye. My cat did a translation of that. It was terrible. Meow, 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 meow. Meow, meow. Meow, meow, meow. Anyway, so one hit wonder. No, but I can't remember the, the actress, uh, the author's name, but she wrote one book and like never wrote again. And there was always this this comment about she was, I don't know if the word was paralyzed with fear or whatever. That's not Carlos, so I'm not making that distinction. But Carlos's work was always, he wrote one amazing book about the Reformation. He's been a Yale professor. He's done lots of articles. But I can't off the top of my head remember a second book. But he just published, because it's you know, Luther Palooza, 1517, 2017. He wrote this 800-page book on the Reformation. And he's talking about this problem of religion being both, in a very strange way, ingrained into who we are. And so all of our cultural and social and, and other assumptions get woven and wrapped up in religion. Mm-hmm. And yet, on the other hand, religion isn't those things. So it's separate. And he, he, he has this wonderful story. I've never heard this story before of two Spanish women in, in late medieval Spain. And it's just during the, the, the Eucharist, obviously, the Mass, a very somber, serious moment in the Catholic Church, particularly in the Middle Ages. And just as the priest begins the liturgy, two women start fighting, cat fight right in the middle of the sanctuary. The retelling of the story is just so, and you can't believe this is happening. Like, it was WWE. One lady hits the other lady <laughs> with like a board upside the head. And they just go at it. They're so mad at each other. And the court records afterwards, because they both get pulled apart and arrested, is that the two of them were fighting over, they so wanted to be a part of the mass, they wanted to, to be near it, but they started the fight over their social standing and who gets to sit closer. Hmm. Because they're, they're at least relatively equal, but one thinks they're superior. And so, and he just says, this is the epitome of what we're talking about. They both reverentially think the mass is so vital to their life, yet... And he just says, no one today would think, I get to sit closer because I'm above you in, in that kind of way. And so at least the modern Western world. And he says there might be cultures that still think of patriarchy or matriarchy as like who sits closer to things. But anyway, it's this fascinating thing that you can't disentangle medieval Spanish society and the almost caste system of who sits closer to the important event mm-hmm. and the fact that they do actually think the mass is vital. And he says, you're never going to disentangle these two things. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and I think similarly, we can't disentangle the systematic theology as kind of the preferred method for theology today. It's not the only one. There's obviously all sorts of contextual theologies and approaches, which oddly, as you said, you know, uh, theology is, is pastoral and out of a time and a place and a response uh, is the old way of doing theology. So really, yeah. Latin American theology and, and African American theology, these are not really new things, but old things that have been kind of um, reignited in terms of responding to needs. But um, yeah, well, systematic theology is clearly here to stay, but in a weird way, we're kind of aware about the awareness that it's a, a false way of doing theology, that you, you know, people in the pews aren't thinking that way, and even pastors often complain later that these classes yeah. aren't always useful 
to them. Um, yeah, it depends on how they're taught, I think. Yeah. It depends. I teach systematics and it's 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 a challenge. Because uh, I think, you know, in in the pews and your, your average churches, people are walking up asking questions that might imply a systematic answer or, or a categorical answer, a loci. How do I understand this? Or or why do we say Trinity? You know, that I mean, some people, you know, that might come up as one learns a little bit more about the faith and they hear these words. And I'm thinking of it, you know, more from my kid's perspective. You know, my five-year-old actually has asked, Daddy, why do... Why, if we say Jesus is God, why do we say, why does he talk to God? Right. And I'm just like, ooh, you just walked right into the Trinity. Yeah, that's five, right. That's know? right. Yeah. You know, so some of these basic questions can be asked by anybody. The lie is in the kind of rarefied abstraction language. Correct. Whereas, I think, in other words, I think the best systematics assumes and tries to posture in the narrative of the scripture itself. And... The only trouble I have with more recent attempts to be non-systematic is it's still technically wink-wink, but we know systematics is happening. <laughs> right. You know, it's it's trying to be the opposite of something which never fully get, gets you away from the thing you're trying to reject. Again, hermeneutically, if you say, well, we don't have to start with categories of God or attributes and things, and then you go on to describe God's attributes, well, you've just basically immunized yourself from being challenged because you're not describing it that way. Correct, yes. The way out is not easy, but I find that it, it, sometimes it's too simplistically thrown out. Yes, yeah, I, I think that's right, that we can't just throw it out. We can't not use the word religion. We can't forget something once we know it. Yeah. Except yeah. unless you're Professor Xavier, like, you know, in, in the Logan movie, like we, we can't turn it off. So once Descartes doubts about how would I know that I'm really awake or asleep, like once that question gets asked, people try to answer it, but they're never going to answer it. It's the no. inception problem of, you know, what if you're trapped inside something you would never know. Uh, By the way, I was just on a plane. I never sleep on planes anymore because I don't want to get incepted. <laughs> You just never know. You just never know. Never know. Yeah, got got to watch out. We can't turn those things off, and so I think that's probably why systematic theology is here to stay. We teach it in the seminaries. I totally agree that it's very useful, especially to pastors, in the sense that if you want to look up communion or Trinity, uh, you, yeah, you go and look that up, and that's why there's books about Wesley's theology because pastors want to know, and you can't just read all of his works and try to figure it out. You want to go somewhere and look it up. So the categories are really useful, but also, as you said, you do have to balance it and try to keep it from becoming a rarefied thing, what, what Baltazar called a dusty scholasticism that's yeah very theoretical. It's not about actually living things out. It's not about real struggle or loss. It's it's just kind of a, a counting angels on the pen, head of a pen or, or whatever yeah, the old yeah. image is. Um, so that's the challenge. I think DC is more like systematic theology. It's a little more self-aware. By the way, do you know why they, they they never really debated it? But do you know why the question "How many angels can dance on the head of a pen?" would have been asked? Why? Because one of the central issues in medieval theology was what does it mean to have being? Does being require a physical substance to it? And the natural question is, well, an angel doesn't have a physical body. And so if you say, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Obviously, you're talking about a, a, a single point in time. If they don't have a physical mass to them, it's infinite. It's an infinite number can dance on the head of a pen. Because they, they, they here, here are beings that can all fill up one space, and they have, they don't, they're not crowding each other out. Again, no one really ever asked that question, but that, it's a question that could have been asked. It's always been the, the joke. No, I th you're right, though, because I, 
what I'm curious to see is with the Wikipedia stuff, which which you mentioned rightly, I'm wondering if let me put it this way. I, I think people are now far more primed to think of, at least intuitively, the difference between here's a reported fact and here's the interpretation and the application of it. So, I mean, you know, again, we, we can look up any number of, of instructionals or information on who lived when, who did what, what's this view. You know, we have access to that at our fingertips, uh, literally. But we also know that the information there requires interpretation because someone on Wikipedia could have edited that and made it right. different. And and so my students, at least, when I'm teaching systematics, they know there's a difference between, well, here's a fact, here's, here's some data, and here's how we wrestle with that data. Whereas a generation, maybe more ago, you know, the, the idea was you go to systematics to almost download the schematic, and then you're good. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So the teacher's guide... And I think the teacher is someone to ask questions. That's one thing you can't do with YouTube exactly. I guess you could put it in the comments, but but YouTube or, or these oh, online there's never courses. Any, there's never anything sanctified in the comments on YouTube. <laughs> never, right. Just trolls. Uh, just trolls. But, you know, part of having a teacher is you can ask them something and they can answer it. Yeah. And so you have yeah. that give and take versus just kind of, like you said, a data dump, a data download. So, yeah, the teacher is a guide through things. A teacher is someone to answer questions. And I think teacher, too, is is someone that, or pastor, is, is a way of getting into someone's mind that we can yeah. get all these facts, and you can even get different interpretations. But to see how someone approaches things, that also builds a certain understanding. Uh, and it could be reading a book like Bart, but it's also having a certain teacher or professor or pastor over time, you get to kind of embody their thought process. And that's a really useful thing. No, you're right. It's that, that, that language of how you approach it. My pastor always tells, we have a couple of the seminarians that, that come to, to, to church with us. And when he's talking to anybody, frankly, that's at the younger seminary age or college age, he just says, look, you know, there's a, there's a severity with which certain questions are approached. And there's uh, other questions. Yeah, you could talk about them, but you just kind of go, look, that's that's not the the most important issue. He kind of intuits and tries to model this. Here's issues that you really want to get serious. Like, you want to talk a lot about this issue. And here are issues that you want to talk about, but they, they shouldn't dominate everything. And I'm, I'm not thinking of examples off the top of my head, but I've just seen that that type of the new student, the novice, is the one who takes everything with equal seriousness. Right. Yeah, uh, like questions about sacraments or sacramentology. You know, yeah. th- those are things most most people, I think, would agree are not worth fighting over. You can talk about it. You're welcome to position, but you recognize that others... In my case, you know, being history of politics, each election cycle seems to have the latest severity upon it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying take it, take it less seriously, but it, uh, there's something... The, what the internet tends to do is the way you get noticed is by OMGing, like, set your hair on fire about every issue. Mm-hmm. So every... And I don't mean just politics... Uh, what I mean is like every little micro incident of something that you're not happy with becomes either a case in point of your ultimate concern or you treat it as if it's the same. That, that there's an analogy there in systematics where worship music, worship style, high liturgy, low church, all those things become like these people clearly have never read the Bible. You know, mm-hmm. kind of, kind of a, a critique, not just categories, but an appreciation as to which categories have historically always been the serious ones. Without making it abstract and enlightenment only, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Well, shall we button it up? 
I think we could. Well, remember to like us on the Facebooks and to review us on the iTunes. Yeah, send us money. Just kidding. Good night, Denmark. We, we love you.